Where I'm going to start tonight is actually the third agenda point for people, which is the, the topic is how to measure the impact of brand, which is something that's come up a lot, which come up a lot recently. Uh, I think it comes up all the time. And the answer is very simple. The answer to how you measure the impact of brand is on sales. That's it. And I'll go a little bit deeper on this because one of the things that we're, we're doing here at Refine Labs when we audit the mix and people, if you haven't listened to um, some of the details on how we define brand marketing, how we define that against performance marketing, which is what most companies do, you could see it as lead gen versus demand gen as well. Demand gen being more on the brand side, in my view. What we execute is we execute brand marketing through both paid and organic channels with obviously different strategies, different channels, different things going on between paid and organic in each different channel that gets measured against website sourced sales. And we're going to get into website sourced sales later on as well, which I'm looking forward to. But I don't think that people really can wrap their heads around this concept, which is if you're doing a lot of marketing, and this is happening both for the companies that we work with at Refine Labs as well as our own company, if you have a holistic marketing mix that's building brand, that more people are talking about you, sharing your content, driving more referrals, driving more word of mouth inside of communities, inevitably more people will come to you to buy. And it's the easiest way to show that it's working. Obviously, we're going to have channel level metrics, both quantitative and qualitative on each specific channel to understand how each of those channels is making an impact toward that. And I'm going to talk through some of those as well, but it requires people to break out of the attribution mindset. And so when we look at something like LinkedIn, for instance, it's a big one. We'll talk about podcasts too. LinkedIn, for instance, what people should be looking for on their own specific page is who is actually engaging with the content, who is following you. And then there's an insight that, I mean, people have heard that from me before, but there's an insight that's super interesting right now for me. I'm sure other people feel it too, is who's sending you messages and what are they saying? It's been super interesting. I get ups and downs, some waves 100 a week, other, other times it's 20. But when you see who's sending it and what they're saying, it's really, really interesting. And some people are asking you for stuff. Other people are just saying thank you. Other people are saying that's super interesting. Other people are encouraging you. Other people are saying, wow, like I did some of those things and I was way more successful. All of that stuff is super interesting qualitative feedback. You can, you can set quantitative metrics as well. So likes, comments, shares. I've been down this train before. Like Those things are an indicator. They can help you. But if you optimize for them, you're going to get into the wrong, the wrong place depending on what you're trying to do, right? If I changed my LinkedIn strategy a year ago, I could have 200, 300,000 followers because I had the algorithm figured out. I basically had it dialed in for like four to six weeks in a row. Every Saturday morning, I could write a post and know that I was going to get a million views. And I did that. And that you would get view, you would get views and comments for three weeks because I just had the algorithm figured out. The problem is I was talking about things like career and challenges and and different things like that that did not move the needle for my business. And so I think people want to consider that as well. I see a lot of people sort of like pandering to the algorithm or chasing likes or engagement. You see that with all the polls that people are putting out now. And so 
and the way that I got here, and I think this is an insight for people, the way that I understand now some of these things other people don't see is because I've done it. And so the interesting thing for people is as you start doing it, you're going to find nuances that might be different than mine. And so it's, it's interesting that, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, as you keep doing a channel and going deeper and deeper, you see things that people didn't see and you can, you can feel, you can measure qualitatively and quantitatively the correlation to those things as it relates back to the business outcomes. If you see both sides, right? If you're measuring the channel and you're looking at Salesforce or HubSpot or whatever you're using, and you can see how something like that is happening and then moving over onto the Salesforce side, that's how I figured out paid social, to be honest, as well. In 2017, we just like, you know, we knew that we were going to get seven to 10 demo requests a week. And then I just started spending money on Facebook ads. And then the next week we got 15. And then I kept spending it, kept being at 15. And it's just not that complicated. I don't know what to say. Like, and so on the on the podcast side, the podcast is harder. The podcast is, in my view, like a true, a true dark funnel channel. And even the quantitative metrics are you know, difficult besides overall, overall listeners or downloads or different things like that. But again, that doesn't show you anything. I want to know how many people are listening to the whole episode. Who are those people? What do they think about it? Is it do they come back and listen again? Like those are some of the things that are interesting to me that are difficult to, to measure inside of a podcast. And so in a podcast, one, you should be doing it for all the other reasons that we talk about, market research, networking, being able to talk. I've had conversations with people that would never have a meeting with me in real person if I was trying to do something else, but because we're on a podcast, I'd be able to get time with that person. So those are some interesting things. And then I just want to bring it all back here is that like there are, and I, some of our customers do this and I think it's really smart, right? Like there's definitely ways to measure brand in a different way. Like, and I've done these surveys myself, like, do you recognize this logo? How do you feel about this brand? Where did you hear about this brand? What word do you associate with this brand relative to competitors? You know, what do you think is the leader in the category? There's a million different questions that you could ask qualified ICP buyers in a survey and get a lot of interesting data. So that one's good. One of our customers, and I've done this myself as well, is if you ask them, where did they hear about you to a mass market, and you're actually running some of these channels, it'll tell you which channels are really working. And the inevitable answer for all the ones that I've been a part of is social media, which usually means for most people, LinkedIn or, or Facebook and Instagram ads. And so the impact of brand gets measured on sales. You need to have the, the qualitative and quantitative indicators at the channel level to use that to optimize those different channels to move the needle on the sales. But it really ultimately gets measured on how many people are coming to you to buy and buy. And I think we're just going to move right in because there's an, unless there's questions, there's a nice segue here into a topic that I have a lot to say about because we've been getting questions about it. Are we good to just go through? Yeah. Keep it going. Awesome. This is a big one. I post. I posted about today. I posted about the definition of qualified pipeline and added a ton of different contexts. If you haven't read it, I thought it was super valuable. We're actually going to publish some stuff in more detail about it and then actually uh, and actually sell it. And so um, there's some free information there if you want to grab it right now. And the the question that got asked from someone was, I'm basically talking about a holistic website funnel in all the things that I say, and people are like. Does that include paid channels? How do you, how do you attribute them? Different things like that. 
it's just difficult to try and explain that in a LinkedIn comment. And so I prefer to do it in a lot more context here because I feel like I could talk for 10, 15, 20 minutes about this one. But this is, if you can get over this as a marketer or a marketing leader that enables marketers to get over this, this is a game changer for your business. I know plenty of companies that are customers of ours and plenty of companies that are not customer of ours that have taken this advice and gotten really good results. And I'm going to talk through why. And so the, the why is why marketing teams should move to a holistic website sourced funnel. And so before we get into this, I'm actually going to do a quick poll and I'm going to go into the chat. And so if everyone could like kind of participate in this, this would be awesome. So the first one is just a raise of your hand. And so um, who here has bought enterprise SaaS before or buys enterprise SaaS? Got some people here that buy software. That's awesome. Okay. Now I want you to put in the chat as, as succinctly as you can. What do you do when you're ready to buy an enterprise software tool? Download an ebook, pricing, <laughs> book time with sales for a demo, ask a business associate, Google it. Request a demo, 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 read the website, call sales, sign up. And so those are some of the, the things. So what I was looking for, and this is good quantitative data, and we're going to keep it in the chat. But what we see in the data of how people do this, and I think when we mention this, people will know what I'm talking about is when you're ready to buy enterprise SaaS, you Google the brand name, you go to the website, and then you either consume the homepage if you need to know about it. Otherwise, you just click request a demo and you fill out the form or the chatbot or whatever you can and try and get in touch with somebody. That's what a majority of people do when they, when they are ready to buy enterprise SaaS with a sales-led motion that's not product-led. And so that's what people do. And aligning as step one, aligning on a website uh, sourced holistic funnel is that it aligns with how B2B buyers want to buy. They want to buy on their terms when they're ready and they're going to come to you. And at that point, a lot of people are already pretty much done buying if you've done marketing well. The key is there is if you've done marketing well. Otherwise, you might actually be vendor three because there's no leading brand in the category or you're not the leader. And that might reflect in win rates and different things like that. It becomes a lot easier if you've won and then somebody comes to you to buy. And we're going to talk about that later on. So one, aligns with how B2B buyers want to buy. Two, if you start at revenue and you work backwards to where stuff came from, what you will find is that somewhere between at least 60% for some companies up to 80% is that the actual revenue, not leads, the revenue is going to be coming through a demo request that has original source in HubSpot or you know, UTM data in Marketo, the, the channel referral source of organic search, direct traffic, or branded paid search. It's going to be a majority of where you get your revenue, which is all through the website, through a demo form, through specific channels. And those specific channels are not performance marketing and are just people that are ready to buy. The thing is, what happened before they did all of that stuff? What actually drove those actions? People think that it's organic search. People think they're doing great SEO, which is driving 60 to 80% of their revenue. But here's what actually happens. Word of mouth, content, brand. That's what drives people to take that action. Companies have done surveys and tracked that greater than 50% of their organic demo requests come through word of mouth. 
how do you get more word of mouth in the market? You do better marketing, you produce content, and you deliver a great experience and product to your customers. Those are the three things. So what matters to marketers here? What, how can marketers, marketers can move the needle on all of these things, but the big one here for marketers is brand driven through content that can be shared, that educates people, that drives a narrative that people like, that creates affinity to your category, that shows a vision for where you think that the world is going, that people can get on board with. Another thing that's coming up a lot, it's a big talk right now, is communities. I think communities plays very well. I place perfectly into word of mouth and content at the same time. And so I think that one is interesting as well. And so if you, just to kind of wrap a bow on this point, if you start at revenue and you work backwards, you'll find that most of your revenue is coming through a holistic website funnel anyway. <laughs> but what companies do is they, they have this website funnel that's driving revenue. And then they take all of their advertising dollars and all of their marketing efforts and then go put it in a different place to drive leads for attribution. And if they looked at them, they would realize that those different things that they're doing inside of certain channels, content syndication, LinkedIn performance marketing, Facebook and Instagram performance marketing, non-branded or competitor Google search for the most part is actually not moving the needle that much. It's moving the needle on leads but it's not moving the needle that much when you look at it in terms of revenue. This sort of goes into my next point, which I think is actually the most important, which is that if you move to a holistic website funnel, you free your marketing team from attribution because it doesn't matter what touch point could be measured. It doesn't matter what channel it came from. What matters is did they come to you to buy and are more people doing that? And then it's a marketer's job to understand how each of those channels are playing a part in the mix and optimize that mix together. Most marketers don't have that flexibility. They don't have those choices because they need attribution. So they can only do like one, they can only do one thing in LinkedIn. Lead gen forms for lowest cost per lead. Easiest thing to do is gate an ebook because it's going to get you the lowest cost per lead because it's the easiest offer to get along or a webinar. And so all those different things it can it can free you from. Also, if you don't do this, if you don't make this change, your marketers have no incentive and no ability to use any of the channels that are considered dark funnel, at least in a way where they really put their effort in and they really try and make an impact. Dark funnel channels, podcast, community, organic social, paid social, the way that we do it. There's plenty of those different channels where marketers wouldn't use them at all or in that way because of this. And so... If you can get over that hump and look at all the revenues coming through this way anyway, a lot of revenues being driven through word of mouth and content and brand, what can we do to create more word of mouth through content and create brand, which drives more people through that holistic funnel? And then what channels do we need to play on in order for that to happen? That's what I'm suggesting that people consider in terms of this thing, but we got more. There's more to it. I've mentioned this a couple of times. I'm going to say it again because I want to hammer home this point. If you look at the actual business metrics of that revenue for your company, comes through a website, asks for a demo. Any B2B buyer would know that when they do that, they are much closer to buying than any other way that they start a sales process. Any B2B buyer would agree with that. Those people are at the furthest away done. They're going to have the highest win rates, the shortest sales cycles, and the lowest customer acquisition cost. There's probably other metrics that are going to be the best in terms of all revenue sources of the company as well. But those three matter a lot. And so 
the business data supports this. I didn't just make this stuff up. I looked at the business data across one company first and then saw it across 50 more companies. And I'm like, whoa, like this, <laughs> this just makes sense. I think more people should move to this. I'm surprised other people haven't looked at this yet. And so those are, I think, three or, three or four reasons. And then one pushback that I get from people on this one is that people say that you can't scale this like other channels. So yeah, Chris, like I get it, you know, website leads coming through, but you can't scale it like I could Google AdWords or LinkedIn ads or different things like that, which is a fair point if you're measuring on leads. However, it doesn't take that much to scale a website demo funnel because you win the leads at eight, seven, eight, nine, 12%, as opposed to your Google ad lead that you're going to win at 0.2%, if that your LinkedIn ebook lead that you're going to win at 0.1%, if that, which means that you need, I think I'm doing the math in my head, but I think it's like 80 times less leads through this funnel. So the scalability is not that different, like moving in 8% win rate, or let's just do 10% for sake of round numbers, moving from 40 to 80, it's going to get you double the revenue. It's going to get you what? Four more deals. And if you're selling larger deals, like four deals is a lot. And if you did the exact same thing on LinkedIn to try and get four deals, I think you need 4,000 leads as opposed to 40. And so that's something for, for people to consider. There's just a, it's an entirely different model in terms of scalability. Like it's prioritizing conversion rate over volume. Obviously they both matter, but people only usually play in the volume category of this. Like how many more leads can we get? Not looking that we only win them at 0.1% as opposed to Maybe we could just get the same amount of leads. And if we just converted them two times better, we would get double the amount of revenue. But people always tend to look at the lead volume as opposed to the conversion rates, which is something that I figured out. When you look at the conversion rates as opposed to the volume, you also have better alignment with your sales team because they're, win they're winning more. They're not wasting their time with bad marketing leads that are getting sent. There's a, plenty of other organizational reasons to, to make this move. And so it doesn't need to scale like a going from one lead to a thousand like you would on Google Broadmatch or on LinkedIn ebook function targeting or different things like that because the win rates are so much higher. And so I feel like I'll pause there. I imagine there's a couple of questions here. Yeah, we got some good questions. <laughs> um, but actually, before we get to them, there were a few people that were really interested in hearing you clarify what, what you mean when you say the dark funnel. Um, we mm -hmm. got the keynote on Thursday. I dropped the registration link, but you want to give a quick preview of what you mean by that, and then people can come on Thursday for the rest. Totally. The dark funnel, it actually, like the first time that I ever encountered this and didn't actually connect the dots, it was in 2016, maybe. And it was called dark social, where like inside of social, you were running ads, but they weren't showing up organically. And then you were able to, to see that. And then there was also people where there was like DMs and other things that couldn't be tracked where people were sharing stuff. And they just called it like dark social, which has evolved a lot to what I consider the dark funnel. Uh, a lot of people actually consider it the dark funnel where B2B buyers are researching, discovering, and evaluating enterprise products in places that companies can't track because they are third-party properties that the third party has no incentive to give you that data. So podcasts would be one. Organic social is huge across every channel, YouTube, LinkedIn, 
Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Unless you're running paid lead gen, in or, if you're in organics, organic social, you're not going to be able to get attribution inside of your marketing automation platform through those things unless you're going to use some type of UTM tracking link that doesn't, that's not going to work at scale. It's just not. And so you're going to miss a bunch of stuff there. Communities is a huge one. Go in there. I almost go in there every Tuesday into the Ask Marketing channel inside of Revenue Collective just so I can remind myself how much this is happening. I just go into the Ask Marketing channel and Revenue Collective, scan around because there's so many messages. I have so much to catch up on. Every single question, do you know a vendor for this? Have you, has someone chose this? What would you recommend for this? And then 20, you know, somewhere between one and 50 comments about people about what they're recommending. And that's how people are discovering stuff. And you will never measure that. And so companies are making decisions on how to do their marketing with incomplete, they're so data-driven with completely incorrect and, and incomplete data about what's actually happening. And that's what I, in short, we'll go into it a lot more detail on the, on the event on Thursday, but that's what I consider the dark funnel. And the, the point here is that companies need to acknowledge all these different things. I've, I talked to, uh, I don't know, two, three multi-touch attribution vendors. All of them know this stuff. All of them know the limitations of their product. I'm not, I don't understand why the general population of marketers don't understand this. There's massive limitations in what those products actually can track in terms of, in terms of those things. And the really, really interesting part is that my belief is that all the things that I listed there are actually the most impactful activities that a B2B organization could do today. Community podcast, organic social feels like the, it's basically what we're running here. It feels like the optimal mix of things that you can't track. What I just mentioned on the why marketing team should move to a holistic funnel. That's what we, what we do here. It's what we do here. It's working. It's also what we do for a lot of the companies that we work with. They, sure, they have different lead sources. They want to go out and do some short-term stuff. A lot of companies want to do that stuff. But when we measure the impact of our things, it's like we're doing holistic marketing across things and we're tracking the growth of inbound volume of qualified buyers, sales qualified opportunities that are created off of that. And finally, the revenue that's generated off that. And is it growing relative to the effort and time that we're spending in, inside of certain channels? And that really, when you think about trying to put together the different channel mix and how those each are playing, you really got to be in there doing it. So that's one. I think you really got to be in there doing it. A second big thing is I, I think marketers sort of get, they might find this challenging, which is that there's some science to it, right? There's some algorithm running in my head while I look at this, but there's a lot of art to it. And I think a lot of people feel uncomfortable in that side, making decisions with incomplete data, which is why they chase some of the attribution and other things that we talk about. But if you can figure it out, it's a really cool skill to have. And it goes with you everywhere because this the exact same dynamics that happened in other platforms before when I didn't know how to communicate all this stuff five years ago and didn't know all the things that I knew. All the same dynamics apply to the things that we're doing right now. It's the, it's the experience and the mindset of doing those things where you notice how things are happening and why buyers are, are moving. Like I can almost deduce why things are happening just because I understand how buyers, I have a deep respect for how buyers buy and research products. That was awesome. Let's get into this. I got a good question lineup. So why don't we uh, take a question break and then we can uh, get back to the last point. 
So uh, Scott, you're up first. Unmuting you now. Love for you to ask your question live. Hey, Chris. As I mentioned before, you and Megan are like big fans. Scott, <laughs> you guys love, are, love you having guys are you here. Preaching, you. preaching common sense, which, which isn't common. <laughs> hey, the question I have is I'm part of community, marketing communities and stuff and, and watch podcasts. And, and it, it just shocks. That's what I want to ask you. And you'd be actually just tonight answered my question, but uh, billion dollar companies to startups, million dollar startups can't figure it out. I'm going to ask you the question is, how do you think you find the puzzle that's been going on for decades on alignment between marketing and sales? So I'll try and work backwards on this one. So my belief overall is that marketing and sales alignment is created at the executive level, potentially higher than the executive level based on what they believe those two functions should do and how those two functions should be measured. I believe that's the root of marketing and sales misalignment. The reason is, and is because they had this mindset from the year 2003 and the mindset hasn't changed and we're almost two decades later. And so while that some of that stuff applied back then, over time as buyers have changed, companies have not adjusted to that reality. And so marketing is still running a playbook of low intent lead gen, which we cover here a ton, which I believe mm -hmm. is, it comes down to two things. One is the metrics that create, that force marketers to do certain behaviors that actually don't help the sales team at all. I would say that they're detrimental to the sales team. I think they waste salespeople's time. I think it lowers productivity. I think it's just, a, for the most part, it's just a waste of resources and time and money in, in a lot of the lead gen that companies do. So one is the metrics, right? And the second thing is that the marketers have not evolved in what they're doing, right? So, and it's a chicken and the egg thing, right? Because you need to change the metrics. I, I'm not here to you know, call marketers out on this. You need to change the metrics in order to do these different things. But marketers haven't evolved either. I would argue that a lot of the marketing that's done right now isn't effective. So they're just kind of following this different path of what Gardner tells them to do, which a lot of CMOs right now consider insurance. They just do whatever Gartner said, because that's what Gartner said. I can put it in a board deck. People will think that I'm credible. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the reality is that the activities that marketers do need to evolve. The understanding of customers at a deep level in order to do good marketing needs to happen. It's almost every single core principle that we talk about on this podcast. And so there's two components. It's the, it's the metrics and then it's the overall marketing activities. But my belief deeply is that the sales and marketing alignment issues are actually rooted purely in marketing. If you were able to change how marketing was measured, what marketing was doing, and the impact that marketing could drive for the business, then the alignment issue would solve itself because you're going to be delivering the, the right accounts to the reps. They're going to have a high probability of close. They're going to be way better than anything that they're going to be able to source themselves through outbound for the most part, right? I get that there's relationship sales and different things like that. But for the most part, the scalability of being able to create that volume of people to come through that actually want to buy and buy is way higher. And so the easiest way to get aligned with sales as a marketer, as a marketing team, is to 
get aligned to actual sales outcomes, which is one part, and then figure out as a marketer what you can do to impact that outcome that's actually marketing, right? The trap that most of us actually in a debate and comments on LinkedIn again today about this, that a lot of marketers are solely focused on helping their sales team close deals that are already in pipeline, which is great. If you're a field marketer, awesome. If you're a demand gen marketer, run pipeline marketing to accounts, right? Like you can do that stuff, but it, it cannot be your entire job. You need to be in the market creating demand, which drives more people in that are ready to buy that close faster. Inevitably, ironically, that when you create demand in the market, you're actually impacting the pipeline already just indirectly and in a way that's not measurable, right? Like all the different things that we're doing at Refine Labs, I'm positive that there are accounts that are in pipeline that look at my LinkedIn videos and that are sharing them with the CFO, are sharing them with the CEO to make the case for why they should work with us with no intent. That's not pipeline marketing. It's, create, it's creating demand that, that actually influences existing pipelines. So I just think people should consider changing their mindset on some of those, those things. But to close out on this one, I really do think that it's, it starts at executives, but it's, it, the solution is fixing what marketing does. Yeah, I'm, I appreciate that. And it's funny because like I comment a lot of times, just like you said, and you mentioned it before, is again, I'm probably 85% from sales leadership. My background is about sales. And then I did some uh, marketing, but it's it's not rocket science how to fix it. Salespeople, right, want to help people, right? And as we mentioned before, we shouldn't even call them salespeople, industry experts when they come to them, right? They want to help people and help them solve their problems, right? With the offerings of the companies, right? But the challenge is they're spending most of their time doing other stuff, not talking, you know, trying to do part of marketing's job. So what you do is you flip it. And just like you talk about all the time is marketing does their job, a good job at doing demand. And when the leads come in, they're actually, most of them are very interested in the products and services so the salespeople don't have to be salespeople and try to convince people they're already mm-hmm. half sold because the marketing's done their job. So mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, I yep. love it, Chris. I love your stuff. And like I said, it's it's just recently another billion dollar company's. I'm watching a, a podcast and they're confused. It was a, a CMO was confused on how to get alignment. I'm like, I didn't say anything, but I'm just like, I appreciate your your feedback. Yeah, and then another thing that sort of maybe a precursor to this. And Mark Robert's mentioned this, and I think it's real. I had never put the words to it before, but he mentioned it on the podcast. I thought it was super smart because I've seen this effect as well. Is a lot of this, especially for the, a lot of the companies that listen to this podcast, is the issue gets created because you scale sales too fast or you scale sales before product market fit. And those are two of the core reasons that create the metrics of leads in order to feed leads, bad leads to a bunch of salespeople that have low productivity and don't have enough things to call because there's not enough demand in the market for people who want to buy. And you create this hamster wheel effect. And when you've raised money, it's hard to move back on some of those things. Sometimes you just got to keep going with it and it creates some really challenging issues when it eventually catches up with you because the the unit economics in those models, if you don't, you don't make it over the the hump, so to speak, the unit economics can be really bad. Thanks, Chris. Good to see you, Scott. Thanks, yeah. Scott. Good question. Yeah, I was going to mention that it's the, the unrealistic goals creates the blaming and the infighting. So I'm glad you got that in. 
Elaine, you're up next. I'm gonna bring you on to ask your question live. Hi. Hey, Elaine. Hey, Elaine. Hi, how are you guys? Doing great. Good. Good. <laughs> okay, so my question has to do with, you're talking about um, website sourced leads. Mm -hmm. And I can see why, why they're better quality because they've already kind of done the research. And I understand about ungating the content. So they've already gotten a lot of value. But do you ever use landing pages? And if so, what purpose would they serve? Of course, <laughs> a landing page is just a, is a website page, right? Like that's the way that I look at it. I think there's basically like, if you look at landing pages, I would define them in two ways. You have like this traditional, like 2011, like squeeze landing page from Google ads where there's no way out. Right. That's and they just, what I'm talking about. Where they just, <laughs> where they just land. And the only option is to bounce or convert. And they just try and flood you into this thing. Like we don't use those, but I would also consider just like, you know, having a product page that talks about the product or having a page that talks about where you think that the market is going or part of your strategic narrative and running ads to drive people to that so they can consume the content. I consider that a landing page as well. Right. It's just a, it, there's a different objective to it. My objective is that I communicate someone to something to someone that changes their perception about something that influences them in some way to consider purchasing the product in the future as opposed to I'm going to try and shove this person into a form so I can report on an MQL metric and pass it to sales when most likely they're going to move to close loss if they even get to a meeting. And that's sort of like the, it's just generally if, an easy way to look at it is like as a marketer, I prefer to be the filter as a marketer, as opposed to having human people filter all the garbage out. And so instead of having my AEs do it or have, instead of having my SDRs do it, I'm going to do it at the marketing level because it's very obvious based on lead sources and historical data and just common sense and intuition about how people buy stuff. You can just, just not try and convert people that are not going to be people that are going to move through an enterprise sales process. And so I just don't try to convert them. I try and move them forward. And then with all of the additional, if you stop doing that, then the first thing is that all of the people that you have could do completely different activities. Instead of having a team of 10 inbound SDRs that churn through people and create meetings that don't close, you could take those 10 inbound SDRs and convert them to something that's way more valuable to your customer and way more valuable to your business. The other hidden cost is like, I get that there's some AEs that are pumped to have you know, their calendars flooded with demos, right. but it's not that hard to get someone to sit on a demo. What I would be pissed about if I was a rep is I'm having all these demos that come through marketing none of them close because they're through performance marketing through an ebook that an SDR tries to get someone to a meeting with a gift card or something like that. And then they sit on it and they immediately move it to closed loss, which is a complete waste of time. Right. And so um, it saves all of those resources, a lot of time to go and do something more productive. And if you set this foundation up from the beginning, you would be able to scale way more efficiently because you would weigh less people if you built this from the ground up. It's oh, five, yeah. to, five to 10 X less less sales headcount would be my guess. Yeah, you're, you're definitely getting a better quality. And it's, I like dedicating that whole page to education, but now you've taken away the form at the bottom. <laughs> and so what... the, form, the form's still there. I'm just not forcing someone to convert it, right? Sometimes the form oh, okay. is there. Other times, other times it's not, but like, it's a nice to have. It's not the goal. And most people uh, consider it the goal. And so the goal is that I communicate information to people. They consume it. 
and then it changes their perception about something, which requires you to understand the customer, have validated the messaging, act, you know what I mean? Actually do it. There's way more marketing strategy work that goes into this than math and conversion performance stuff. I get it. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Love your questions, Elaine. Good to see you. All right. My friend, David, you're up next. Good evening. Hello, everyone. Chris, I wanted to kind of comment on something from a post you made today. So bear with me as I try and get this straight. The, the goal is not to try and stump the scientists. Rather, it's to try and seek clarity. You, you always okay. pull some new stuff out of me, and I appreciate it. So let's, well, let's do right. this. And I appreciate that you're always there to, to have an answer. So thank you. <laughs> so here's the thing. Today, you were talking about what you call a qualified opportunity, okay? And so that's in your post from today for folks to go check out. There's one aspect of it, one of the criteria, there were several, that caught my attention, and I wanted to try and better understand this. So quoting you, you say, historically, using a six-month trailing, you look at opportunities um, that have a, a staged win at greater than 20%. So I was asking, so what stage do you find is most often or more often than not the stage where you start to see that 20% win rate to which you said, well, typically the third stage. Mm -hmm. And I thought this is turning into rocket science now, isn't it? <laughs> so can you unpack what, what is third stage? Obviously every company has got different stages. They've got different ways of defining this and for all very good reasons, but could you just unpack that aspect of things? Maybe you didn't quite articulate it the way you, you intended, or maybe I didn't quite understand it. So I just yeah. wanted if you could dive in, because it seems a little bit self-fulfilling that a qualified opportunity is an opportunity that's already gotten to a stage where it typically closes at a 20%, or from that point, 20% of them are likely to close. So I don't think you're trying to be self-fulfilling. I'll stop talking let you mm. do that. I mean, I can explain the stages, but I'd appreciate if you go a little bit further so I can well, answer the question. Yeah, Just clarify for me on the 20% win rate. I think this is important for people. This is something that you were trying to, you were suggesting in an answer to a qu mm -hmm. question, right? The win rate needs to be past 20% as measured by a particular stage. And you said the third stage. Yeah. So feel free to jump in, but I'm going to try and like, going to try and answer this the best. Please I can. do. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. So... Most companies operate on a five or six stage opportunity model. Somebody published it and did it. It might have been serious decisions. I'm not sure. Stage one is sales accepted lead. Stage two is sales qualified lead, which would be qualified through typically an SDR. Stage three would be AE qualified demo sat. Stage four would be something like vendor selection or something like that. Stage five would be negotiation. Stage six would be execute to close something along those lines. And so stage, typically stage three is when the AE has executed a demo, has met with the prospect or multiple people inside of that account. They've done a discovery. They believe that there's an opportunity here. And that's sort of like what I consider stage three in this model, but it can vary based on how each company does it. There's plenty of companies that have stage three and don't have a 20% win rate. Okay. Right. So what's really interesting is it's once again, so important to have clear definitions of what we're talking about. So it's not that yours is right or wrong. It's just that I want to make sure I understand it. Totally. I would call that something different. That's fine. 
that's not the point. The point mm-hmm. is to understand what you're thinking of as that particular stage. So, so to you, whatever it might be called, SQL, SAL, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. It's that stage where the AE has said, yes, I've, I've spoken to these people. There does seem to be something here. There's a kind of a fit between what we do and what they're looking to solve. They've seen a demo. They want to have an engaging conversation with us. And now we've got to work out the finer details, including negotiating price and negotiating contracts and you know whether we actually will be able to big picture do what we promise in their environment. So mm-hmm. stage three is once we pass that, we've done the demo and it looks like there's a fit on a mutual desire to continue the conversation. Is that what you're thinking of? Whatever yeah, we might it, call it, right? Yeah, whatever we might call it. And anything, exactly. anything before that, typically the AE hasn't touched, right? And so that's sort of how I'm looking at it. And then the 20% win rate one, I think is, is really interesting one, because like I interact with enough companies to, to know that when they hit that stage, you should have a consistent win rate based on that specific lead source, which is a website demo request that's not running a ton of performance marketing into a demo form. I would argue that like, if there's a person that's in stage three by this definition, and the company's only winning those opportunities at 5%, then I would debate whether or not they have a good sales process and whether that person's actually qualified. You're winning one out of 20 and you think that's qualified? Something's wrong in your process, right? And so it can be a flag for a lot of different things. It's not just marketing, but like it's also a flag on the sales process side to consider because like you're not you're not going to get very far having that many opportunities that far in the process and winning one out of 20. You're not going to have a very efficient revenue model. And so that's sort of where the 20% comes in. And the reason that I say this, and I my post was framed specifically for marketers which is that it's hard to get a lead or a qualified account, however you want to look at it, to whatever stage is required that you're going to win those at more than 20%. And because it's hard and because it's later funnel, you can actually, it like allows you to change the way that you do marketing because any company that's running LinkedIn conversation ads, giving away gift cards for this, running LinkedIn ebook downloads, running content syndication webinars, running... Google AdWords, like broad match stuff. I could go on for a very long time on the list of all the things that companies are doing. If they looked, if they considered that point, 20% win rate and forward, the metric about whether it was successful or not, they would shut all the stuff off because nobody gets that far because they don't actually want to buy stuff. And so I think it can be really empowering for marketers to change the help executives change their mindset about this. Because one, it can help you stop doing things that are clearly unproductive that people are doing just to pump up lead numbers. I know people that spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a month on content syndication and know that it doesn't work. Tell me it doesn't work, but they need, they need that thousand or 2000 leads every month in order to hit their goal, which just makes no, just makes no sense. You know? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Uh, been there, done that. Right. So, <laughs> so. I guess the, the one thing I want to double click on, on what you said there, right, is to understand as a, a humanistic process, what you were talking about, because I think many of us in this community and people listening to this may have different definitions that they've applied, that they've picked up over time, or they've agreed to with sales. This is an MQL, this is an SQL, this mm-hmm. is an SQO and all those things. So understanding that everyone's got different definitions of things. And I wouldn't call what you described, right, as uh, I would have a different name for that, by the way, based on my history. What would you call it? I'd love to know. So for me, an SQL 
is a sales qualified lead, right? Mm -hmm. And the SAL is a sales accepted lead, which comes mm -hmm. before. So in my kind of hierarchy and process, we start out with an MQL. Marketing says there's something interesting here. So sales says, okay, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I've accepted it. I'll mm -hmm. ex let me check it out now because I haven't qualified it yet. I'll just, yeah. I've agreed that it's there. I'm Typically based on firmographics, right? It's just like, this is a fit. It could be many things. There's yeah. indication to say, yeah, this, this looks like it's a good thing. I'll accept it. I mm -hmm. have formally decided to own the thing from here on. Mm -hmm. You've gone as far as you can go, marketing. Thank you. I'll take it from here. That might be after a first demo, for example, or that might be after. It depends on everyone's company and what their product and what they do. Then sales says, okay, well, I've got to have a bit of a chat with these, these folks and see if there's really something here. Let's dig in a little bit deeper. I can't really answer every question in 15 minutes, nor can the Northern Prospect. So over a period of a week or two, you allow the sales rep and the team to kind of engage and, and to kind of coordinate schedules to have that deeper conversation so that sales can qualify the lead, him or herself. Mm -hmm. At that point, when they say, ah, you know, there is something here. I mean, we may not win the deal. We're in a competition, perhaps, or there are certainly many factors to figure out yet, but there's no reason why we would not accept this. And they seem like it's something that we should be able to do business with, right? There's mm -hmm. a fit, there's a problem, we match the problem and whatever the criteria might be. So it becomes sales qualified at that point. Mm -hmm. That to me sounds like your third stage, I think, <laughs> where the yeah, sales rep so has had an opportunity to say, okay, I've had a chat. It's not just some form that got filled out and now I have to do something and make something from it. It's the fact that I've had a chance to have a chat and there's something real here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to venture a guess here about the sales model that's being used there. It's a full cycle account executive model. Uh-huh. Well, yes. I've seen variations on that where there's an SDR, does the front end, and an AE does mm -hmm. the sales qualified portion. Yeah. And so this is going to help out a lot of people that are listening. I appreciate you going through that process so we can clarify this. At SQL, for a majority of companies, an AE has not talked to that person. And the person that's doing the qualification is incentivized to get someone on a meeting with an AE. And so there's misaligned incentives here. SDRs can do things to get someone into the meeting with an AE. And right when they get into the meeting, the AE shows them a demo and they never talk to them again. And it moves to close lost. And that's the, that's the gap that I'm trying to explain to people. I'm, I'm actually trying to help people move one stage further than what you're saying here, because it a lot of stuff between those two things is going to move to close lost when the AE starts touching, starts to touch it because there's not perfectly aligned incentives between those two people that are doing things. I think companies are trying to figure that out by partially incentivizing SDRs on close one revenue, but a majority of the comp still comes from whether or not they sat on a certain amount of, they got people to sit on a certain amount of meetings each month. And that's the gap that I'm trying to communicate to people. Yeah. Okay. Yes, absolutely. I've been perhaps lucky that I haven't seen that gap or I've been part of what has been the bridge between that gap, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, trying to make sure that gap is not a gap. But I appreciate absolutely what you're saying. So thank you for awesome. Kind of, you know, Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, it was great to chat. Okay. I always appreciate your uh, the conversations we have here. Thanks, David. Joanna is excited to come on and ask her question live. I'm going to bring you on. Let's next. do it. All right, Joanna, you're on. Hey, how yeah. you doing? Good to see you. Nice to see you as well. Long time listener, first time caller, and Chris, you and I have spoken before. Um, great show. Um, question I have for you, um, when you started off this podcast today, you kicked it off with a poll that said, when you're ready to buy a SaaS uh, solution, what do you do? 
And that made me think about what we currently or previously did to sign up for a new CRM. Um, and you know, new CRM for a company, you know, you're looking at between 50 or 250 ARR. So it's a it's a big process, a big decision, right? I and wonder, a ton of vendors, and there's a couple of leading vendors, but there's a ton of vendors as well. Ton, right? Yeah. But I wonder if that question can be rephrased a little bit. And I, I ask you why, because when we're ready, or when I'm thinking like when I'm ready to make a decision, I have already spoken to various companies, right? I've gotten the demo, I've sat through that, um, I've looked at the pricing, I've looked at the features. So in fact, when I'm ready to buy, I should have already, you know, a contact person that I've been working with, like an AE or a sales engineer or someone like that. So I wonder if the question should be sort of phrased differently as in when you're researching a potential CRM or other SaaS, how do you get in front of a buyer? And I would love your comment on that. Thanks. Yeah, it's a great question. So I would argue that many B2B buyers, and I believe this number is growing, have pretty much made the decision about what product they're going to buy before they've even seen a demo. Because there's a brand that's leading and, the cat and there's a category, right? Like plenty of people are like, it doesn't matter what's going on. Like I'm going to buy Salesforce or I'm going to buy Sixth Sense or I'm going to buy blah, blah, blah company, you know? And so I think especially like the core B2B buyers, which is now millennials and the generation after, I think that's Gen X, I'm not sure exactly, but the, the a lot of B2B buyers fit into those those two generations. And I believe that more and more people are making decisions based on that because of brand and word of mouth and strategic narrative or vision of the company. I think a lot of people that are listening would would agree with that. I know for sure that they're, for me, like, I don't need this product right this second. And I've never seen a demo. But when I have the pain that I know that product solves, that's the product that I'm going to buy. And oftentimes, I won't even explore second vendors because 20 people that I trust have already told me that they use it. They think they have success with it. I like the brand. I like their content. And I'm pretty much already decided. And so that's sort of like personally the way that I buy. I acknowledge that not everyone does it that way, but I imagine that a lot of people listening do sort of, if they look deeply, do it that way. And so if you thought about it, I'll put, pass the question back to you. You were evaluating what, like two or three vendors, I would imagine. How'd you, how did you, yeah, how'd yes. you choose, how'd you choose the vendors? And we had a current, like a, a current one. So um, it was a choice between staying on with our current one and adding on some additional services um, or going through a complete, you know, heart and lung transplants, um, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, and we kind of based it on, you know, the features that will help us grow um, and what, how can this software grow with us? Um, that was ultimately the decision. But um, and I think, you know, you made an interesting point about, you know, perhaps about the millennial buyers or, or you know, younger buyers, you know, perhaps they already know when they're ready to buy, who they're going to buy from. But I also work in the hardware space. And so when I listen to your show, sometimes I wonder if some of these lessons are applicable to my space as well. Where 100%. I worked in hardware for the first six or seven years of my career. There was one company in an industry called Hawk. They made sensors for a bunch of water. And the phrase that went around the entire industry is you'll never get fired for buying Hawk. And they just purely bought on brand. I believe that this effect 
can make a difference in every single industry because I think it's just a universal principle about how people understand products and buy things. I think that the difference in some of the hardware industries is that they don't execute brand very well. Mm. And so there's two situations when you're a B2B buyer and you need to buy something. The situation is you either have a top vendor in the category because you know about them, other people that you trust use them and you like the brand or you don't, right? And so what I'm suggesting to people is that if they're in that category, they become that vendor for people. Otherwise, the path is go and ask people that they trust or research on Google. And then if you're one of the vendors, you become one of four vendors and you're not preferred as opposed to being the preferred vendor. Good, okay, thanks so much, appreciate it. Awesome, good question and great to see you. Likewise, take care. Thanks, Joanna. All right, I got another one from Andrew. Let's keep them rolling. What's up, Andrew? Good to see you. Hey, so question based on what you were talking about a minute ago, do you see marketing's job in 2021 as essentially replacing the SDR function at a lower CAC? No, but I'll elaborate because that was just a really short answer. So no, I, I don't see them replacing the SDR function. I think that when you ex- execute marketing well, it can empower the SDR function to change what they do to much higher value activities. So that's the sort of the, the thing. 10 years ago, business development was pretty much banging the phones or hitting the street and having big meetings. And now you can do business development every day, 24-7 on the internet through broad marketing or one-to-one marketing inside of social channels on your own as a sales rep at SDR, a marketer, or any other person inside of a company. And so the concept of business development has been flipped on its head the best avenues to do business development have completely changed. I watch sales leaders that have evolved over this spectrum over the past five years to when I was saying this in 2016 about why they needed to post things on LinkedIn and they didn't do them to now that they're coming to me to try and get help to figure out how to post on LinkedIn five years later and see and when they told me that this would never work, it was full of shit. The salespeople need to do their job and build the relationships and go to trade shows and events. And that process has changed. And so it's been interesting to see people develop on that. But so if you rethought how you would do business development to get people interested in buying the product and you actually had that working, then one, you would never need an inbound SDR again because the people that are coming to you are firmographically qualified, have asked to talk to a sales rep. They're converting into SQO, like David said, at 50, 60%. You don't need an SDR to talk to that person at that point. So you'd have that. So you, if you didn't have inbound SDRs, I think that you would still use outbound SDRs. I think what a lot of companies are moving to more of an intent data, personalized outbound model or some type of blend where there's an amount of like conversion-based outreach and other ones that are more like, I would consider brand or posting on LinkedIn or doing other activities that are a little bit less transactional and how some companies have seen success with that. But I think it just it shifts more to the outbound side. It actually relieves the pressure on inbound. And that's kind of like how I see it developing. And then if that all developed, there was a previous episode, I'm not gonna go through it all here, but I talked about how if you actually had that system running in marketing with 
those types of leads that were converting at 50 per 60% to sales qualified opportunities directly to account executives on their calendar through a demo form, booking the meeting with their rep and just going through that, then you could almost completely rethink what your SDR role was. Right now you need you know, low, low cost employee that's typically young out of college. I know people listening to this are SDRs that are more experienced and different things like that. I know that there are, but for the most part, that's the hiring profile that people are looking for in SDRs that don't provide a ton of value to buyers. Most don't stay in the role for more than 18, 18 months. Super, like just generally, typically not a great like work environment. And so, and if you rethought all of those different things, then you might, instead of having 20 SDRs churn through shitty leads all day, you could actually have two industry experts that are publishing content on LinkedIn in a modern business development model that as they create awareness inside of the market with their content, they can do strategic outbound and people say yes way more. I send messages on LinkedIn, not for sales stuff, but eventually I'll test it just so that we know. I would eventually love to publish that data showing what that's like in terms of the industry standard, like connect and conversion rates for SDRs compared to what mine would be on a LinkedIn message. I'd love to see what that data looks like. But those are some of the things that I would like how I would change it. But I don't see it replacing the SDR. I think that it um, just like how, I don't know, like all the automation and self-driving cars, right? Or whatever those things are, people are afraid that it's gonna absolutely replace someone. What it actually does is empower smart people to do a more high value job. Yeah. So if I understand you correctly, it's, it's hey, not wholesale replacement of the SDR, but maybe replacement of what you'd call kind of the antiquated SDR function of handling inbound, you know, and then passing to an AE from there. It's, it's more of strategic outbound is the function for those folks. Yeah. And then, I mean, I would just consider it just rethinking what business development is. Each company is going to be unique. I would, I think if some companies looked like it would be interesting to measure what like the cost efficiencies on their outbound side were. I think some companies that they actually measured that and didn't consider it a fixed cost would find that it's actually not productive to do that, at least in the way that they're doing it right now either. And so those are some thoughts, but there's a lot of nuances here. I don't think there's a ton of black and white answers. The black, the black and white answers is that the way that buyers buy has changed dramatically over the past 10 years. Companies have not adjusted their go-to-market model. Business development has changed and companies need to uh, need to change with it. All right, well, I love that picture in, in your background, by the way. It's super cool. <laughs> Thank you. Stevie Wonder thanks you as well. Nice. <laughs> or the, the lower half of his face. <laughs> That wrapped up our batch of questions. I thought we had a third agenda item. Of course we did. Got it right here. Crash course. Yeah, I don't even really have a plan here, which is great. I love when this stuff happens. So um, <laughs> I wanted to talk through it because the amount of comments that I got on my post today about qualified pipeline and looking through you know, how it's going to convert forecasting revenue based on that, accounting for sales cycle length, projecting out customer acquisition costs and calculating that different thing. A lot of skills and even like the split the funnel concept where we look at different lead sources that have different conversions and backing into things like a surrogate for buying intent and different things like that. All this stuff I figured out in what I consider would be like the revenue operations component that marketers really need to master. I've done a lot of the different parts of revenue operations from like data and architecture and automation and 
sales process optimization is a big one. Sales enablement I've done, analytics reporting and insights. So like basically all the all the core functions that a revenue operations team would do, I've I've done before, and I'm going to try and build like a. I'm not trying to build it. I'm just going to try and just communicate what I think a crash course, like a five or ten minute segment, would be on what marketers need to know about these things as like a as a 1.0, which is mainly in the insights and analytics bucket of what I would consider revenue operations. It's not about structuring the data. It's not about running automation. It's about using that data, slicing and dicing it so that you have insights so that you can make decisions. And so a couple of the things that I want people to take away, number one is not, not all leads are created equal. And so if you actually look at where your leads come from by source, you will see that the conversion rates through each stage are very different. And it, so one is just the lead source and then the lead source of the contactor lead, however you use it in Salesforce, will then get transferred to the opportunity as like the opportunity source. And then if you track the opportunity all the way through to the end, you're going to see where things are falling off and what the conversion rates are. And then when you go back and apply and you see, okay, all our content syndication MQLs are not getting to an opportunity. Why? And when you start to look at those different things and you just ask the question, it gives you insights that a lot of marketers never think about or never see, which is like, this person was on a third-party site that wasn't ours, filled out a form that didn't have our brand on it, read some random content, and now we're trying to call them and get them into a meeting. Feels kind of sleazy to me. I don't know. And so like, when you start to look at some of those things, it can give you insights about like, why isn't this working? And then you can transfer that into other different channels and understand that as well. So the key take home is, is looking at it by different lead sources and that gets broken up into two buckets. One, the most companies call this the primary campaign source. I call it the conversion point. Where did somebody convert that initiated the sales action? And so a demo request, an ebook download, you know, an, out, an outbound cold call, intent data from Sixth Sense which triggered an outbound cold call. There's a ton of different conversion sources. And then you have the on the marketing side, you have the referral channel. So the referral channel, organic search, Google, Captera, Google paid that is, LinkedIn. There's a you know third-party content syndication. There's a bunch of referral sources as well. And you have both of those different things. Both of them are, if you look at the data, will allow you to infer the amount of buying intent that people have when they come from that channel and do that different thing. And so if you look at your data and you say, okay, I'm looking at demo requests, one, one group that comes through organic search and submits a demo request, and another group that comes through a paid LinkedIn ad to a demo form and fills out a demo form, the conversion rates to just to the meeting are going to be way different. The reason why is because the person on organic search was most likely on a desktop computer, searched for something that had intent, landed on your website and asked for a demo. And the person on LinkedIn might have been looking for a job or trying to do some prospecting to sell their own stuff, sees your stuff, clicks on it, thinks it looks cool, fills out this form, and then three, three minutes later forgets that they even did it. And that's literally what you hear when you call those, when SDRs call those leads. I don't even remember filling out that form. I've never heard of your brand. Those are the things that you hear. I know because I've called those people and that's what you hear if you even are able to reach them. So the, the take home here is that the, 
those two places, the conversion point and the referral source from a marketing standpoint can give you great insights as to what are the paths to conversion that actually move forward to qualified opportunities and revenue. The next one is pipeline velocity. And so in, in pipeline velocity, it's a relatively complex calculation. So we're not gonna do some crazy math here, but in essence, it's a relative measure of how much pipeline moves through your funnel to revenue within a specific period of time. And you can break that out by lead sources. You could do inbound versus outbound. You could do demo requests versus ebook versus trade show versus this. And you'll see that when you stack those up, it'll be very clear which ones are actually the best things to do. And so the actual calculation of pipeline velocity is historical win rate times number of qualified opportunities generated during that period times average deal size divided by the historical sales cycle length. And so what you're doing is you're using three historical data points, which are win rate, sales cycle length, and average deal size. And then you're so three historicals, and then you're using a number of qualified opportunities created, which is a present metric to feed forward and project what's going to happen in the future using one feed forward, three historicals to project out. And so you can start to see which ones are actually moving the needle the most. You can also do this pure historical, but the feed forward one is super interesting to project things out. And so pipeline velocity is a, is a big one. Um, I think like <laughs> funny sidebar here, like in 2019, I wrote a massive blog post on pipeline velocity. You can probably find it somewhere on our website. And so there's something there. And the, the funny part is before I ever did anything on LinkedIn, I wrote four blog posts. I probably spent one. I definitely spent like up to seven days writing this blog post and like nobody saw it. And then I started just taking the little chunks of what I said and writing about them on LinkedIn and way more people saw them. <laughs> and so it was just, it was interesting insight about what I found very quickly when you when you don't have a lot of organic marketing demand, we had zero. When you don't have any customers, when you don't have any word of mouth in the market, when you got nothing, it becomes very clear which things are working because you can you see that. So anyway, pipeline velocity, a big one. Reference the blog post if you want. I think if you search pipeline velocity refine labs, you'll find it. Next is uh, next is cost efficiencies. This is one that I don't see. The only thing that I see marketers ever look at here is cost per lead, and I'm suggesting that marketers continue to look later later funnel on this one. And so the things that we measure on are cost per SQO, customer acquisition costs, and you can actually use cost per SQO and historical win rate to forecast out what your projected cost of acquisition will be in the future. It's not perfect, but it gives you a really good good measure to go back to executives. I mentioned this in my post today. You know, we're getting sales qualified opportunities that are worth $50,000 each for $2,000 we're going to win those at 25%. It's going to cost us what we estimate is it's going to cost us $8,000 to get a $50,000 customer. Almost every SaaS business would take that bet every time. Would take that deal every time. It's just a good deal. You pay back you pay back the revenue in I don't know, two and a half, three months. It's just a great payback period. I audit companies that have some lead sources that are have CAC paybacks of 60 months and I'm like, "Why are you doing this?" So, looking at the cost efficiencies later funnel CAC is the most obvious one, but I think cost per sales qualified opportunity and projected CAC is a, is a feed forward calculation or two that marketers could really get a lot of value from. 
mainly in communicating the value of marketing to executives before it's happening. This is something that happened to me in probably 2017, 18, where because you're in a 90-day sales cycle, you're doing marketing that's working. As a marketer, you're doing it because you know it's working because you're doing it, but executives don't know. And so you're doing the marketing. It's driving leads. You're watching it convert through to pipeline and later stage deals, but you got to wait 90 days to to actually see that happen on average. And it takes you time to build pipeline. You're going from no opportunities to creating opportunities. So it doesn't happen from from day one to 90. It's going to take more of like 180 to 270 to see a lot of those effects happen. And so now if you had that, you could use, if I knew the things that I know now back then, you could use historical data about the win rates of those opportunities, which by the way, are going to be better than your outbound historicals for the most part, if you're doing it the way that we're talking about. And then you can go back and say, hey, we, I know that we haven't closed any revenue yet, but we created 10 sales qualified opportunities at $2,000 each. Our outbound team is over here trying to create sales qualified opportunities. It's costing us $10,000 each over here. We think we're going to win these at this rate. I think we should continue to scale up marketing. That's what I, sh- I should have done back then. But I just didn't know the things that I know. So now you can learn from some of the things that I didn't know back then. The next one is data and reporting. This is a huge one. Um, I think that it's... Honestly, like a, I'm just being honest, a relatively rare skill to see marketers that can slice and dice pipeline in HubSpot or Salesforce in reports, understand what it means, and then use that to either make a case to executives to change something or to take that insight to do something different. And so looking at conversion rates between certain stages, looking at how deals are progressing, how much time they spend in each stage where a lot of them are dropping off and then looking at that process and seeing if there's a way that you can optimize that specific part of the process to move that conversion rate from 20% to 30%. Hint, sometimes when you look at you know, the drop-off between SQO and SQO that David and I talked about, sometimes the solution is fixing that part of the process. Other times, it's looking at the entire system and fixing a different part of the system. And that's something interesting. That's, that's revenue operations right there. Sales ops would see that piece of the process and say, oh, we need to fix our qualification process or we need to fix this or we need to figure out the booking. But if you looked at it in the whole revenue system, you would see what we actually need to do is fix our lead sources. And so there's some interesting looks there when you look at it and see marketers look at marketing metrics, but I think marketers that look at marketing metrics, sales metrics, and CS metrics would get a lot more value in how it could actually impact their own marketing. And that's the 1.0 crash course on revenue ops for demand marketers. I know for some people that are just listening with like no visuals or different things like that, some of those calculations or things that I talked about might be a little bit confusing. If you have follow-up questions, I would love to answer a couple. No questions so far, but some really great uh, sharing in the chat on some of the points that you were making. I'm also going to drop the registration link again for the the dark funnel keynote on Thursday. Great. A good one. Oh my gosh. It's almost nine o'clock already. Yeah. Time flies, people. I know, I know. I feel like we're in a good spot. Yeah, I do too. This was great. Yeah. Any closing thoughts to just tease out the the dark funnel keynote and then we can uh, wrap it up for tonight? If you can make it there, I would highly encourage you to be there. If you can't, it's totally cool, but I would encourage you to listen to this. This is something that I've been seeing as a marketer since as early as 2014 when I was trying to sell blankets on Instagram ads in the dark funnel and, and 
I've struggled to ex explain it. Other people have already done a very good job explaining what it is. So I'm just communicating some of those things. I think the insight that we'll be providing there that's different than what you're going to find in a blog about the dark funnel is what it means to marketers, what it means to marketing leaders to acknowledge this, how to communicate it to other executives, and then how to change behaviors about what you should be able to do once you, once you know it. I think a lot of people talk about the dark funnel and what to do. And the only thing suggesting that I've ever seen from people about it is buy our intent data software. And so not here selling you any software or different things like that. I'm just going to tell you some of the things that we're doing right now that are working across a lot of different companies that require you to acknowledge that this thing called the dark funnel exists and adjust accordingly to it, which allows you to, to do certain activities. And so maybe that'll be a little teaser for some people listening to the podcast tomorrow to do a last minute registration. And other than that, pretty good for, uh, for episode one of the podcast with the new studio. We'll be doing some ongoing maintenance here, a couple technical difficulties. I'll just share them with people mainly as a learning point. So people understand, like I'm used to hearing myself out of my headphones. I can't hear myself out of my headphones, which sometimes I lost my train of thought once or twice tonight. Uh, for that reason, we're in a, we're in a new space here. Air is coming through this thing. It's drying out my throat. There's a couple of things that we're, uh, we'll be working on, but yeah, I like, I like being transparent on some of these things. We're obviously stepping up the podcast production. And so once we have it all figured out, I'm sure other people might want to model this for their business. And I'd be happy to, to share some of the learnings that we figured out throughout this process. And I appreciate you supporting us while we figure it out. And with that said, hope you all have a great rest of your week and look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. See you next week. Or maybe, or maybe Thursday. See you everyone. See Bye. You Hey everyone, thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.